From your daily local and Two Moms Media and Warren PA, this is Smoke, the Disappearance of Damien Sharp. We're your hosts, Brian Hagberg and Stacy Gross. Hey guys, so I'm going to have a non-traditional episode this week. Um, I was not able to get anyone that I spoke with to go on tape. Um, as we get further and further into this series, I'm finding that less and less people are willing to go on tape. Hopefully that's not a... Uh, reflection on me. I think what it is is that everybody who was willing to go on tape jumped on tape real early and so I've been working on the last few and unsuccessful so far. Um, That's for a myriad of different reasons, ton of different reasons. Doesn't mean anything. I'm just saying like I'm sorry that you guys are listening to me squawk at you (laughs) for an hour. I'm gonna try to catch you guys up on all of the things that we left open-ended at the end of the last episode. This is gonna take the place of a question and answer episode because apparently Leaving a message on Anchor is terrifying. Um, I know that people have questions. You know, I love to get questions, but I would love to answer them all um, for everyone because I know that everyone has a lot of the same questions. In fact, I answer a lot of the same questions over and over again. So I might go through a few of those um, toward the end. But for this episode, I want to catch you up, first of all, on Crime Stoppers. So the ongoing Crime Stoppers situation is that... um, The number appears to be non-working since about um, 2020. Um, You can go back to listen to episode uh, 7 and 8 on that if you want to catch that whole story and figure out um, where we're at at this point. But basically, I've been telling people to call Crime Stoppers with information. There was a $2,000 reward that was set out in uh, June of 2011 um, by the Crime Stoppers organization. The organization uh, seeks to impact crime by making anonymous um, tipsters a little bit richer with um, rewards for information leading to arrests in open cases. Um, The organization that we're talking about that we're discussing is Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc. It's a nonprofit organization, um, principal officer being Gary Barnes. Uh, We went through all that in seven and eight. I highly suggest you go back and listen if you're not familiar with what's going on, what I'm talking about. But this tip line that I've been telling everybody to call, make anonymous tips about Damien, maybe get $2,000 for this reward. Um, Brian was on vacation last week. Brian is my co-producer from Your Daily Local. He was on vacation last week, came back to get a letter in the mail, handwritten address, no return address. Looks like it was mailed on June 23rd. Um, And basically it's just a, I'll just read it to you. So it starts how crime stoppers works, or at least how it worked up until three years ago. I don't know if it's changed. The phone rings into the Pennsylvania state police in Starbrick. It's next to the communications desk where the radio and phone lines are located. It's an answer only phone. You cannot dial out. It is not answered by volunteers and it does not have an answering machine. It is answered by state police personnel. Sometimes when the communication desk gets busy with either calls or radio transmissions, the ringer on the Crime Stoppers phone may be turned down or even turned off, and the person that does this may forget to turn it back on. If no one is in the communications room, it may go unanswered. The person that answered the phone and laughed at the caller may not be familiar with how the procedure works. They should be, but they may not be. There's a notebook next to the phone with a form of the questions to be asked of the caller. Each form is pre-numbered and that number is given to the caller whether they want to remain anonymous or if they want to leave their name and phone number. The form is then copied and the copy is sent to the appropriate police agency. The phone itself is very old and hasn't been replaced. 
or I guess at least hadn't uh, at the time that this writer is discussing, which is up until three years ago. The phone itself is very old and hasn't been replaced. Due to its location next to the communications desk, a new phone should have both a ringer that can be turned down and the light that blinks when there is an incoming call. And that's literally the end of the letter. Um, (laughs) I did not anticipate anonymous communications and uh, super secret uh, stuff like this, but Apparently, someone felt more comfortable getting a hold of us this way, and we are glad that they did. So Brian texted me a picture of this on a Saturday at 1030 in the morning and just said, got this in the mail while on vacation, no return address. I did, so immediately I started um, working on it. Some of the information in there was new to me in that letter. Some of it was not so new to me. Um, specifically, the part about the phone being old, I've heard that from other people, I always got a sense in my head when I pictured Crime Stoppers, when I pictured calling Crime Stoppers, I pictured it um, calling into the state police barracks in Starbrook, Pennsylvania, which, you know, I don't know why I pictured that. I guess I just always did. Um, Amy, the caller who was picked up and laughed at, she described her experience in, I believe it was episode seven. Um, Amy said she always pictured it ringing into the sheriff's office. So, the ultimate deal here, I think the main point that I want to make about Crime Stoppers right from the jump of this episode is that it's very confusing who actually runs it, what the organizational structure is. I would be surprised if a lot of even Warren County residents knew any of how that works, whether you know any of this is true or not. So that was my first question when Brian got this letter was, you know, what's the veracity here? So I reached out to Gary Barnes, the principal officer for Warren County Crime Stoppers, Inc. I did also reach out to District Attorney Rob Green, and I just said, you know, this is what we got. I just, I want to share it with you. I want to let you know that I'm going to be talking about it. If you would like to respond to anything, um, you know, let me know. Um, So the, the response that I got was from District Attorney Green, and he did say, um, I'm just going to read you his text. It says, sad, but sounds like this could be about right. This must be addressed and changed. We must build a strong Warren County Crime Stoppers organization first. We can't go making requests that may turn into demands if we are weak. I'm not sure. I don't completely understand that sentence, but okay. The system must be improved. And th- and he says, thanks, Stacy. Um, he also has a couple of um, non-law enforcement folks that he's going to be bringing to the meeting. I'm going to be meeting with um, Crime Stoppers leadership on Friday, this coming Friday. A couple days from now, um, non-law enforcement is who district attorney green would like to see um, sort of take charge of the organization. So I'm not sure what all we're going to discuss or what all we're going to find out at that meeting, but it's kind of become a concurrent thing to Damien. It's tangential to Damien. I know it's not really part of his story. Um, You're going to hear clicks and clacks and me typing throughout this episode. Sorry about that. I'm going back and forth in my notes. It's been a crazy week. Um, in any case, I'm not sure what all we're going to be discussing at that meeting, but it will be, um, featured in episode 10. Um, we're getting close to the end, you guys. I don't have a lot to add about Crime Stoppers as of right now. I'm just, I'm really looking forward to Friday and, you know, find out moving forward what, um, the situation is. Uh, as far as sitting down with Dave, so Dave is one of Damien's best friends, um, 
I've talked about him throughout this series. He was at a party with Damien on Friday, May 24th. They dropped some chicken in the sink, ate it anyway. He has lots of good stories about Damien. Um, I've emailed back and forth with him, but it was nice to finally sit down with him. So Dave was up here camping this year for the fourth. Um, he reached out after episode eight and said, listen, you know, I think what you're working on here is wonderful, but I feel like you're still struggling to get a sense of who Damien was. I was really excited to talk to Dave. I, I know in, in his email, he said to me, look, I don't have any further information than what I've already told you, but I would really like to just sit down and um, give you some face-to-face time. So when I met with Dave, that was also, God, was that Saturday? I don't even know what day it is. The parade blew my mind and I'm a lobster right now. So probably in the middle of heat stroke or something. I don't know. But whatever day I met with Dave, uh, he was super cool. He came, met with me at the point, which is a local park in Warren. We sat and talked for about an hour. Um, he told me a lot of fun stories. So one of the things that people talk about when it comes to Damien is the Satanism thing. So you look at him, especially in the early two thousands, he may have looked a little, uh, Satan-y, you know, I mean, satanic panic was still going on at the time. It kind of rolled through the more rural areas through the nineties, really, um, Because of his aesthetic, Damien dealt with a lot of perceptual issues. And a lot of people, I think, looked at him and just assumed things. And for younger kids, I think it came down to in school, well, like Brian said in episode one, um, he had a conversation with Damien later on. Another friend came up to Brian and said, aren't you afraid he's going to cast a spell on you or something? The, the whole Satanism thing. Dave is talking about a time um, when they were younger. So Damien did have a huge interest in religions and things like that. And so they had a copy of some book and they were going to do a spell and uh, they were all up in the attic. They were like 14, 15 years old and they had everything assembled. They had the pentagram, they had all the stuff. Um, and <laughs> Dave said that Skip, Damien's dad came up in the attic and he was like, he looked around, there's like candles lit and stuff. Like they had the whole ritual set up. They were really trying to like summon this demon or whatever. And Dave, you know, laughed as he talked about this. And I'll talk a little bit more about why I think he's laughing. But um, Skip pops his head up in the attic, which was where Damien's room was. And he looks around, and he goes, what the hell is going on over here? And uh, Damien said, when we're summoning a demon, dad, get out of here. <laughs> and I'm just like picturing them at 14, 15. Um... When I was about that age, I started getting really interested in anything that was off limits. So I grew up in a really conservative Christian um, church. It's not a healthy place um, mentally for kids to be, but it's where I was. My reaction to that was to start seeking information. Whatever information I was told I wasn't supposed to have or wasn't supposed to want, I immediately started looking for it. It strikes me that Damien might have been similar to me in that respect. I think, especially if it was forbidden, he definitely probably would have wanted to know why. Because he just seems like the type of kid that was always trying to question, push the boundaries a little bit. Just to just to see. Just to see. And, and Dave confirmed this for me over the weekend. He said Skip was a lot like that. And Dana, Damien's aunt, has talked about how Skip and Damien had a lot of similarities. And Dave said Skip was also one who would like, he would just push the boundaries a little bit socially just to see maybe what he could get away with or what kind of more, more than that. I think what Dave was getting at was to see what kind of response they could get. Um, Dave, if any, if you're listening and any of this sounds wrong, please let me know. But this is what I recall from us, us speaking this weekend. Um, he told me another story about Damien where, uh, he was dressed up in full ninja regalia on Liberty Street. I believe it's Liberty Street, Dave, that you were, uh, describing, but 
behind the library in that little shopping plaza. And then the next street over, that would be Liberty Street. Um, kind of, there's a little alleyway that you can walk down. And there's a lot of like corners and little places to hide and be silly, you know, and prank people as they're walking through town doing their uh, downtown shopping or whatever. And uh, Dave said he was all dressed up as a ninja. He had full regalia, like the sword, everything. And he was just like jumping between cars and like jumping out at people, not to terrify them, but just to just to give them that kind of like, what the fuck sort of candid camera moment. I think about candid camera or almost impractical jokers when I think about that story. And I hadn't made that impractical jokers connection, but I feel like that's kind of Damien's vibe just to, just to see what will happen, you know, just inappropriate behavior, just to check the response. Um, maybe for his own entertainment, maybe I, I really don't know. I didn't know him, but the stories that I keep hearing over and over again, it just, that would in my head be the most likely motivation. I really wish that I had gotten to know Damien. I've said that a thousand times over the past year. I really wish that I had gotten to know Damien. Cause I, I don't know. I guess I just watched him all those years and I had so many hypotheses, you know, um, he was one person who really captured my attention just, um, even in the brief amount of time that we saw each other. Um, you know, and Dave talked a little bit more about that night, but he had nothing really to add other than the fact that, you know, he was at Damien's the night before they were going to go to a party, um, something that he knew about, but Dave tends to concur with Stephen, Damien's brother Stephen, on this. And again, I suggest you go back and listen if you're confused. This is sort of just a catch-up Q&A episode to, to keep everything collected, I guess. Um, in the last episode, I talked about how Stephen was concerned that I might be misinforming people about his brother's disappearance or where his brother was headed. Um, specifically, he had an issue with me talking about the fact that Damien might have been headed to Brown Run, might have been headed to Heart's Content. Um, because what, what Stephen talks about that weekend is that, you know, Damien had hurt his knee. It was not a, a good place in the woods that they had already chosen for him to be um, hiking out, hobbling out on crutches. And so the plan changed for that to just become an at-home party. Dave said to him that tracks... Um, and again, if that's the case, I guess I'm just left with why, if he was at, if Damien was at Jim's house buying that pound of weed that we've talked about over and over and over again, which is lame, and I'll talk about why later, but if Damien was up at Jim's and he was without a ride home, I guess it just doesn't make any sense to me why Damien would not have just called his original driver. And honestly... I'm tired of not naming the driver, frankly, and I guess I'm done with it because not only is the driver named in police supplements, the driver has been named to me by more than a dozen people over the course of the last year. People know who was driving Damien around. And you know what? I want you to know, too. It, his name was Bryce Blackman. His father, Jim Blackman, was Rick Hernan's assistant D.A., Bryce drove Damien to the corner of Dahl and Prospect Street to the best of everyone's knowledge. This is what everyone generally tends to agree on. That's where Bryce was supposed to have taken him anyways, and we must assume that he did because Jim, the guy who last saw him and was questioned by police over it, says, yeah, he came here. I don't get in any way why Damien wouldn't just call Bryce back. That is my biggest hangup, and that, it, that to me... I don't get it. I don't understand what else he would have had going on unless Jim told him to go somewhere else for that pound that he couldn't get. 
that's another issue with this story. I have struggled to sort of figure out what the drug distribution system in Warren would have been. And it's funny because all of these things that I've sort of struggled with um, over the past year, getting to the bottom of that have been hangups. Maybe I'm not asking the right questions. I'm not asking the right questions of the right people. Maybe all of a sudden they're sort of coming to me now all in the past week. And so I'm behind on production. This is not a gig that's meant to be produced and uh, investigated at the same time. Now, naturally, that's how this type of thing works out. That's just how it does work out, especially when it's just one or two people working on it. Um, we do what we can when we can, but at the end of the day, we're <laughs> two journalists. We are not police officers. So, you know, we're doing the best we can with just an inordinate amount of information. Um, the more that comes in, the happier I am. But again, it just slows down production which is fine. I, I want this series to be, to sound as professional as it can, to, to be as clean as it can be um, audio wise. But at the same time, I got to throw this episode together just because y'all are bringing me more information every day. And it's great. I love it. Um, that brings me to just, I guess I'll give you this. And then I think I'm going to head into a little bit of a mid roll. Then we'll move on with what I got from Damien's aunt. So we're going to be taking a seasonal break and I've been struggling back and forth with this as well. Do I want to do a season two? Do I not want to do a season two? Ultimately, obviously I want to do a season two um, because I know that we have not gotten where we need to get with this case. There's still so much more to investigate and it would be reprehensible to me morally to just drop it because I'm done with it now because I did my 10 episodes and now I'm just going to be out. Um, when people are still eagerly sending information and the family is still supportive of what I'm doing, I marched in the parade this past Monday with, um, Damien's uncle, Mike Sharp, who owns the roller rink in Russell, PA. Um, I met with his aunt, uh, Anzietta today. She is supportive. She's helping me out with some timelines of, you know, the family's timeline of the investigation so that I can kind of compare notes with the police. I'm, I'm going to be taking that, those timelines. She journaled every day. She has just cases and cases and cases of paperwork that, you know, she's graciously offered to show me. And I take that no more lightly than I take the police offering me some evidence to look at. Um, I'm excited to compare those two things because I think the hangups between family and law enforcement in this case continue to um, be prohibitive to its resolution. That's my honest opinion. I think... I can go to the police and I can say, what's your timeline for this? What's your timeline for that? And then I can go to the family and say, this is what they say. What's your answer to that? What's your timeline for this? And I'm never going to split the difference. I'm never going to come up with a, a matching account of when things happen or, or when people believe that they should have happened. Um, that's something that I would love to investigate more in episode or I'm sorry, in season two. I would like to see season two become more of a deep dive on the bigger issues because Frankly, I don't want to keep saying that Damien was going to buy a pound of weed. I think that has been beaten into the ground. We all know it. And there's no reason to keep going back over it. Um, I think 20 years ago, it was a big deal. Um, a pound of weed is a pound of weed. I'm not saying that a pound of weed is really an appropriate amount for an individual to be purchasing maybe even today. But at the same time, I think that um, as a country, our uh, taboos around marijuana as opposed to other drugs is starting to soften. I'm also aware that there's a deep divide in Warren County between law enforcement and the district attorney. Um, district attorney green has been vocal about, um, his, uh, preference for legalization. Um, 
and maybe he'll want to talk more about that when I speak with him Friday. He may, I'm not sure, but I would love to, I would love to talk to you, uh, district attorney green about what you think the perception of Damien would be today based on the story that we know as opposed to 20 years ago, just in the public. Um, in any case, I know there's a deep divide between, um, you know, for the most part, law enforcement officers do not agree with the legalization of marijuana. They see it as a, a it's a controlled substance. It's an illegal substance, according to the federal government. And as police officers, I understand their orientation toward that. It's illegal. It's illegal. It's illegal. Easy peasy. We're done here. Right. Um, I think when you get into a more philosophical conversation, I think there's a, a lot that needs to be investigated. And I think that um, peer-reviewed research needs to be taken into account. I think that overall law enforcement would benefit from um, a little bit more trauma information, a little bit more um, awareness of the generational cycles that produce addiction and recidivism. I think there's a huge issue with law enforcement judging those things before they really stop to think, is what I believe about this person true? And what would happen just, just, I, I wish everybody was capable of just stopping and asking themselves, what would happen if this person were given optimal conditions to, you know, address their addiction or address their recidivism? If those conditions were met, what could this person be capable of? And I think if you can stop, you know, your, your personal orientation toward that based on your profession, which I understand, but if you can interrupt it for a second and just challenge yourself to look at some of the people in your jail, look at some of your frequent flyers and maybe stop thinking of them, of them as frequent flyers and start looking and investigating into what their situation has been since birth that has led to these choices. Obviously their choices, I'm getting off on a tangent and I'm not going to change any of your minds. I realize it, but I really feel like there's a lot missing from that narrative. In any case, I think it would be really fascinating to talk to some law enforcement um, and maybe talk to District Attorney Green about what people might think about Damien if it were printed today that he was buying a pound of weed as opposed to 20 years ago. That was a long way to go about that. Look, this is a stream of consciousness sort of deal. It's a it's an unscripted episode. I apologize deeply because my uh, attentional deficit is definitely flagrantly showing. Um, I'm sorry. You're going to get one crazy episode. I can't help it. This is just who I am. Um, let's go to a quick mid-roll and then we'll go back and talk. I'll try to uh, provide some coherent ending and um, we'll, we'll see where we're at after this mid-roll. I need a break. <laughs> Do you have a question or a comment about this case or our coverage of it? Visit our Anchor site and click the message button to leave it for us in a voice recording. We may use your recording on an upcoming Q&A episode or other places throughout upcoming episodes. Do it. Peer pressure. Okay, so I took a little opportunity during the mid-roll to sort of uh, collect some thoughts and get a sense of what I've already gone over um, and what I want to cover. So basically, um, I want to talk to you about Damien's aunt, Anzietta. Uh, Anzietta, I originally reached out to another family member who's named Anziette. Um, got the wrong person. The, the message didn't get to, um, Anzietta in time, uh, for her to speak with me a little bit earlier, back when Dana did. Um, but she and I and her daughter Freya sat down, uh, this, out this morning, um, I also met them at the bike run, the ride to find them that Janine has organized for so many years. 
Um, and Anzietta has been a big part of that. We talked, God, for almost three hours in the back of the pepper mill. Um, totally just took up a booth for three hours and just uh, sat up shop. Um, Anzietta has a ton of research. She has done a ton of work trying to organize, find information, reach out to different sources, try to, um, the way that she describes it, she describes sort of prodding the DNA situation, prodding things that went on um, with the investigation over the years and with the different officers. She has notes and timelines of when she reached out. She has emails still that were sent back and forth that were timestamped. And that's why I think, you know, it's important for everyone that if we can go through and just be like, yeah, this matches up or it doesn't. And if it doesn't ask ourselves why, um, I'm not saying that it doesn't, I'm not going to give an opinion on that right now because I don't know, but I think it would be really interesting to be able to sit down and do that. So we talked about Dave, we talked about crime stoppers and Zietta. Anzietta is super cool. She's an art teacher. She has the collar hair. I've always wanted, I'm super jealous of it. Uh, it's not fair. Anzietta lived on Hemlock uh, when Damien went missing around, you know, 2000, early 2000s, um, up to his disappearance. Hemlock is over on the east side of Warren by the Glade Bridge. Um, just a few, maybe a mile down the road from her house probably is uh, where Damien and Steven originally lived above Bike World, that Bike World apartment that we talked about. And then the two of them moved further down um, west on Pennsylvania Avenue, um, not to the west side of town, but down towards downtown. Um, Anzietta was around, um, you know, again, you know, she talked a lot about family and, and I don't have any siblings, but I promise you if I did, there would be at least one I don't talk to. Um, so I'm not judging anyone, uh, as far as, you know, family communication is sometimes spotty and it, it comes and goes. And that's, I think, normal for some families and for, you know, my family, it's definitely true. So there's been no judgment there, but she talked a little bit about how, um, and Dana mentioned this as well. And Janine mentioned it in one of her interviews. And, you know, I might just go through, I might just pause this and pull that out here later. But in any case, all three of those women have talked in the past about feeling a little bit fractured. Um, Janine talked about in the beginning of things, um, Rick Hernan actually, she was pulled into Rick Hernan's office. I think I am going to get that off of YouTube just to cover my own ass. Almost a month before we were able to put out missing persons flyers. They thought it was going to be a big drug bust. They were going to make their names for it. This is just my assumption and the rest of Warren because of the way we were treated. I couldn't get anything answered. They wouldn't tell us anything. Then I was pulled in with the DA Hernan at the time and said they're only going to talk to me. They're not going to talk to anybody else. There's rumors flying around. There was searches done. Um, I can't say how many. Morrison Run, uh, Chapman's Dam. Somebody said the reservoir, but... So there was sort of an effort to centralize where information was coming and going from between the family and law enforcement um, and that had the effect, it seems like, the way that all three of these women have described it in the past. Um, it feels fracturing and it feels like it may have really complicated communication between law enforcement and the family because the family, I think, was attempting, in spite of any issues that they may have had interpersonally, it sounds to me like 
the siblings who maybe didn't get along the best really kind of tried to pull together to work together on it, but uh, it just wasn't able to work out. And it could very well be because, you know, one family member gets information and is told, don't tell this person or don't tell that person. You know, Detective Kameni talked about it in, I believe it was episode three where I interviewed him and he's talking about circles and you keep your circle small and you don't let a lot of information out. But at the same time, and this is where, you know, I think this underlies my point of trauma-informed policing, there there has to be a way to bring some awareness of um, the fact that the family is trying to, to work as a cohesive unit, whether they have in the past or will in the future or not. They were trying to work together to benefit Damien's situation in the case um, and to work toward resolution. And it was difficult because, you know, they couldn't get a coherent or a consistent or a regular updated narrative from law enforcement. That's just one example of how I think, you know, I'm not judging police. I appreciate the police. I respect the police. I, uh, you know, have had my issues in the past and I don't hold grudges with the police. I don't believe that all police are bad, but I do feel like as an institution, law enforcement has become one that has um, sort of fetishized the rejection of uh, mental health awareness or trauma awareness. And I think that needs to change if we want to see law enforcement adapt with times that are changing. I'm probably going to have no sources at the end of this episode. Shit. I'm being super honest, but that's my opinion. Um, so Anzietta, Anzietta is an art teacher. She's into religions and she actually has this onk earring. That's so cool. And I noticed it immediately. As soon as she walked in, whenever I see an onk now, I always see it. Um, I always pick them up wherever I'm at. They stand out to me now. Um, and you know, she had a story about that and it had fallen down a drain and then she recovered it like three months later and she's had it for 20 years. She's had it or however many, 17 years, maybe since he went missing, um, plus a few. So, um, what Anzietta had to say, uh, was a ton of stuff. You know, I'm really excited to get those timelines from her. I'm really excited to learn, you know, what kind of connections she's gotten. She's Really, really supportive of the CUE, the uh, Community United Effort. Um, Monica Kaysen is the uh, organizer for that organization. I've been trying to get a hold of Monica, and I need to reach out again. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm working up to the end of the season, and I'm, I'm hoping to add that to my... Actually, there. It's now added to my season two investigatory checklist, Monica. Um I'm trying to make that up as I go here. I don't want to be in the same situation in the next season. But um, Monica and Janine actually started working for the CUE. Um, she became a regional coordinator for New York and Pennsylvania. She went out on searches, Anzietta was telling me today. She uh, has participated in searches for other family members. You know, um, they talked, Anzietta told me a little bit about like when they were doing those dog searches back in the day, you know, their role would only be to. Um, as a family to help provide food for the dogs, help provide, you know, support for the um, people if they were included. And sometimes they weren't and sometimes they were. Um, again, it, it was a little bit inconsistent, which for reasons, I'm not a police officer. I'm just saying um, this is what I've been told. And I could see how that could, you know, impact communications between family and law enforcement. I'm going to stop beating that horse shit. Um, Anzietta brought her daughter Freya with her today. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Anzietta said that Freya was only about a year old when Damien went missing, but he would be at their house regularly after he got back from the military. She said he would walk up. He um, procured a 
window air conditioner and helped put it in. Um, he would roll up to Anzietta's house kind of the same way that he would up to Dana's house, it sounds like. Um, he visited his aunts. He visited his family. He was close to them, and he maintained those relationships on his own. He didn't need to be pushed or prodded to do that he would show up with an air conditioner because he knew she needed it and then you know he was 21 they would go down and meet um his grandmother um Anzietta's mom uh at V&J's it's now Fat Daddy's on the avenue but they would meet there and he would have Zima she said I remember Zima as a kid I thought I was a real badass uh sneaking a Zima with some I use Skittles apparently everybody else used Jolly Ranchers I was not doing it right. Maybe that's why I hate Zima. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like it better with a Jolly Rancher, but what the hell do I know? Anyhow, he would have his Zima. They would, you know, sit and talk and visit. Um, Anzietta said that he wasn't as close. Damien was not as um, close or personal with her in the information that he shared as it sounds like he was with Dana. You know, he told Dana a lot of really personal stories beyond what I've shared on the podcast, you know, um, situations with women, situations with girls that had come up. He would really confide in her. Um, and it seems like with Anzietta, he almost kind of thought of her more as um, like a grown up. <laughs> then maybe he thought of Dana. I'm not sure, but that's the vibe that I get. Like Dana was the one, Dana was the grown up that you could joke with, but Anzietta was the one that you tried to behave around and make proud. And not that he didn't try to make all of his family proud in the same way that we all do. But I think, you know, that curiosity about responses, the playfulness around social interactions and inappropriate behavior and pushing boundaries is really well highlighted here for me from the outside looking in. And I'm, I'm not, um, I have really no other background to talk about it, but just based on what I've, the conversations I've had over the past year with Dana and with Anzietta, it sounds like, um, he played their own personalities off of one another and he, he responded in kind, um, with his own family, the same way that it sounds like he did with his friends. Um, Anzietta was big into religions. As I said, she studied a lot of religions, and I think that that might be where his curiosity for that came from. You know, he saw it modeled with an aunt that he clearly visited and spent time with and was relatively close with. Um, and I think he probably liked that about her, and that might be where that curiosity came from. You know, they shared that interest in um, just not spiritualism or whatever, but just maybe curiosity about uh, things that people talk about but don't actually take the time to learn about. It seems like he was interested in kind of learning a little bit more about some of them, maybe. I realize that we're only at about 35 minutes. I'm going to try to keep this going for the full hour. For subscribers, I'm sorry it's late. I know there has not been a bonus in a couple of weeks. It's just been crazy getting ready for this parade. I do want to swing back around in this episode to Dave just a little bit. I want to talk about, you know, in my interview with Brianna, a couple of people have mentioned things about um, the Brianna interview that maybe they question, and that's fine. I have completely shared that it's an unverified sighting. I've tried to draw in other details that I can pull that might be relevant to that, might not be. I don't know. We're dealing with a mystery here. In any case, um, when I get to what Damien was like to his friends and family. That's a hard thing for me to comment on. And I can only make comments based on what I've been told and what I've observed um, secondhand. Dave talked about one incident and he kind of talked about how he got to know Damien. And so Dave moved to Beach Street to that west end of Warren, uh, downtown Warren uh, neighborhood. Dave was 15. Damien was 14. One of the things that they had in common, so Dave was the new kid. He was kind of coming in on this established group of kids. And if you heard Dave, um, sorry, if you heard Brian talk in episode one about, 
you know, the friendships that he had, it was the same group of kids. They played in each other's yards. They were, you know, I know my own kids, their friends come in the house just like they live here. They help themselves to snacks. They help themselves to drinks. So, I mean, that's a tight group of kids, especially at, at a developmental time when you're going through those kind of like stand by me big moments, you know, as kids developmentally, the big changes, the big experiences, the firsts of, you know, your teenagerhood, that is not an easy group, especially if they're close and an established group of uh, kiddos, you know, for a new kid to walk in on. But Dave said, you know, he was the new kid. He started getting along. They had things in common, especially Dungeons and Dragons. And so I guess the dungeon master, the guy who tells us the storyteller, the guy who tells like the game's story and action to the players, if you're not a nerd like the rest of us, apparently, uh, that person had left the group or was no longer serving in that role for the group. And so Damien really wanted to be dungeon master and Dave became dungeon master. And there was a rivalry. Dave said, we did not, we were best friends. Absolutely. By the end of it, but we were not, uh, we did not get along in the beginning. Dave told me, um, and it, you know, might've partly had to do with that. Dave said, I'm sure that there were other variables and other things that went into it, but I said at one point, and I've heard different stories from different friends, and I, you know, I try to think about what's motivating each person to tell me each story, but I've heard probably three to five different stories where Damien behaved towards his friends in a way that maybe started off or the impulse for it was playful or like a prank, but it was mean. Um, I'm going to talk about what Dave told me, his experience of that, you know, they were standing on a street, Dave was leaning over a, a railing and they had gotten into a little bit of an argument and, um, Damien just walked up behind him and punched him right in the head. His glasses flew off, Dave's glasses flew off and across the sidewalk and Damien just went home then. Um, and Dave said, I was kind of stunned. Uh, like it kind of, you know, rang my bell a little bit and, uh, he said it was about 20 minutes. He went home. His fr other friends helped him get home. And he said, I kind of sort of like came to awareness of exactly what was happening and what had happened while I was sitting in my room. And he said, I called Damien up and I'm like, why'd you hit me? And Dave said that it was after that, that the two kind of became friends um, in spite of that weird, really kind of it went unexplained why it actually happened. I'm not sure if they talked about it. I can't remember if he told me and he didn't remember or... He didn't go into it, but in any case, they became best friends after that, you know, over a period of time. And I think back to what Joe B said and how he described Damien as like what Damien said to him directly years later is that you, you walked up to me and you weren't afraid of me and you treated me like I was normal. And I said this to Dave, I don't know if it really struck a chord with him or not. I'm not sure if I'm making too many assumptions, but that's my brain can't help but try to complete ideas um, when I'm presented with all of these traits and behaviors and he didn't really confirm or deny whether this might be the case, but I think back to Bees's story and then I think about this with Dave and he just, Damien walked away and went home, didn't say anything to anyone. And then Dave called him and just directly asked, Hey, why did you hit me? And then they became best friends. And I just think to myself, was that an aggressive angry goth kid who just flipped out and punched his friend or did he act impulsively did he have some kind of an issue where maybe he had a hard time controlling those impulses I don't know I'm making assumptions but I feel like they're at least plausible 
And if that's the case, then he probably got really embarrassed and scared and figured, well, I fucked that up and walked home figuring he lost a friend or he lost his other friends who were going to side with this kid that he just punched who he didn't like. Then Dave calls him up and they become best friends. It just seems like Damien maybe was a little bit impulsive, maybe acted on things and had learned over the years that people would reject him for that. And it was painful. And so he just learned to weed people out with his appearance and his aesthetic. And he would walk away from things where he figured the interaction had ended it or ruined it. And then if he was proven otherwise, then he would, you know, re-engage. That's just, a. am not describing to you how Damien was. I'm describing to you a pattern of behavior that I see and trying to interpret it. That's the way my brain naturally works. I fully admit this could be completely way off base, but I mean, Jesus, we're at episode 10 uh, in 20 minutes and one week. I'm at 40 minutes. I'm just trying to piece this out a little bit more and get everything in here before we roll on to episode 10. I'm going to try really hard to find somebody willing to go on tape for you on episode. I don't know what's going on. <sighs> Lucy, listen. We're coming back to the end. And what I want to talk about is Anzietta and Dave both said to them what it feels like is whatever happened after he left James's place, whatever happened, it feels to them. And I tend to agree with this based on just the experiences that I've had within, you know, the drug culture in Warren County in 2002 and, you know, the years leading up to that through through high school. It's entirely possible that Damien just, his employment was running out. This came from Dave. You know, his employment was <clears throat> running out. Excuse me. At some point he had um, said to Dave explicitly that he was thinking about maybe trying to sell some weed, but Dave and he never discussed it that much. Um, but it was only like an interim thing until he could find, you know, work or that's how Dave understood it. In any case, you know, if Damien was used to, picking up an ounce of weed here and there for personal use or for friends or whatever. And then he decided one day he was going to get this pound of weed and start, you know, working on that effort. It's entirely possible that, you know, he ran into the wrong person at the wrong time and he just tried to skip a level and he wasn't ready to skip that grade, you know, in terms of, you know, marijuana pure procurement uh, in the city. Additionally, you know, I've talked to a couple people and this is one thing that I'm going to be trying really hard to dive deep on in the next, you know, leading up to Christmas, the next few months, um, when we finish with 10, a focus of my investigatory efforts are going to be what specifically and who specifically were the low level, the mid level and the high level dealers of, uh, any kind of substance in Warren County in that time, you know, the five years leading up to you, maybe the five years after. And I really get a sense that it was more than likely a middle, uh, like a mid-level dealer runner, uh, middleman. So, Dave kind of suggested that himself independently. I ran that past Anzietta today when we talked and she kind of was like, yeah, that sounds, you know, maybe right. Just based on what she knew of Damien and what she knew of Warren at the time. All we can do is combine our efforts. All we can do is get together and tell our stories. And I hope that that specific anecdote really illustrates for you how everybody's piece is important because you know, Dave can sit and think about that fact or that theory and Anzietta can sit over here and think about it too. But until you get together and run it past one another and brainstorm and talk, that is important. The rumor, we would love to re reverse engineer the rumor mill to make it work for the case instead of work against it. Um, we're really trying to clear up everything that we can. I know I've been telling you for episodes and episodes that I'll tell you about Frank. I swear to God, right hand to God, you guys, I will not fuck you over on that. I will give you my conversation with Frank in the final episode 
for right now, what I kind of need to tell you is that that's where we're left. You know, I have spoken with people specifically who have told me directly, I went to Brown Run expecting to see him because I was told he was coming, whether it was from him, whether it was through conversation of other friends. I expected to see him on Brown Run that night. That's why I went up there or part of the reason I went up there and he never showed. I have two individuals who concur that they both, they both agree that they went up to heart's content looking to camp at the spot where they thought Damien was supposed to be that night. So whether or not he was actually headed out there or whether or not those stories are red herrings, I don't know. Um, you know, Stephen fully disagrees with either one of them and, and does not think that they're in any way accurate. But if they exist, they exist in the narrative, they exist in the supplements, they exist everywhere. They exist in the rumors from back in the day. They exist today from rumors that are you know, branching off and turning into their own variants of the originals. Those camping stories exist. Why they exist, whether they're true or not, I've never claimed um, one way or the other, but I've told you what people have told me and that you're kind of in the same position that Brian and I and the police are in at, at this point now. Um, you know, whether they're true or not, we don't know, but if they're red herrings, then doesn't it behoove us to investigate them anyway? Because at the end of a red herring legend has to be an origin. There has to be an original storyteller. There has to be an origin or a source for that, for that legend. So where does it come from and why? If it's not true, it's not true. I'm not invested in it. I'm invested in finding out whether or not it's fucking true. Um, that's all I'm trying to do here. So hopefully you guys are still hanging in there. We've got one last episode to come. I will tell you about Frank. And then, you know, I'll tell you... So for this seasonal break, what we're going to do is stop after episode 10 uh, next week. I'm not sure what we'll continue to do. You know, we have a strong, engaged audience. I don't want to let you guys languish for months. I will continue to run social media. I will continue to tell you, just like I did leading up to episode one of season one, you'll be involved in the investigation. You'll be able to watch it sort of unfold. I'll leave, you know, little hints. I'll leave little teasers on there. Um, but ultimately everything that I do, um, from next week until Christmas time is going to be focused on a set of maybe five to six things that I want to really nail as far into the ground as I can. Um, this case is endless because no matter what corner I go to, that corner could go off into its own story, into its own. There are questions upon questions that get so far away from Damien and his case that I have to just leave them and put a pin in them. There are many pins. Uh, you know, everybody says, what are you going to do for the next podcast? Are you going to do another cold case? And honestly, I don't know. The, the only reason that I'm able to do this one, I think, is because I had that, um, you know, original fascination with Damien. And, and he's occupied more of my head over the years than I've realized. Um, I don't know that I could go to another missing person from this area and have that same stamina because I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what we'll be doing next, but I know that we are not going to uh, drop this case until either we come to a natural conclusion. We've done literally all that we can. Uh, the family says enough is enough. Um, you know, we'll, I think that we've done a good job, you know, really kind of trying to be sensitive with family. And I think that at this point we're still doing what we should be doing, which is trying to answer more questions than we leave. Next episode, we'll talk about Frank. Again, I invite anybody, please, please just leave a message on Anchor. You can just say your first name. You can give me, a, I don't give a shit if you give me a fake name to ask me a question. I don't care, but ask a question. Um, it helps 
keep the show moving forward a little bit. And I think that it helps everybody because so many of you have the same questions. Um, as far as the parade goes, we had a great time yesterday. Um, it was me. It was a listener. Malia Stilwell was uh, out marching with us. My two kiddos. Uh, Carissa Stearns was driving uh, her son, Wyatt, and we had a great time at the parade. We had a great reception. Um, I was pulling a wagon full of, you know, uh, popsicles and water and sort of watching all these people. My friend Amy, that's who I missed. My best friend Amy. Jesus Christ, I'm going to hell. The other mom and two moms, Amy and her son Silas were with us. Uh, Amy was there passing out information and I was watching people handing things out and I was watching reactions and overwhelmingly I saw neutral to positive reactions. I saw a lot of people like wives would take it and then they'd be like poking their husbands on the shoulder like, hey, check this out. I was told that I had a ton of people ask, is he still missing? Is he still missing? Yes, Damien Sharp is still missing and it's been 20 years and his mother waits for a resolution. So... Let's get on it, guys. We all have a part to play. We all have a story to tell. Yours may not help us find them, but yours helps deepen and enrich all of the details that we have to work with. I really look forward to bringing you episode 10. I hope that you're enjoying this series. Uh, feel free to reach out. Feel free to let me know. Um, and we'll keep you posted going forward uh, how that seasonal break will shake out. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with episode 10 in a week. And uh, I am going to go crash real hard because my workday starts in about six hours. All right. Bye, kids. This is the person, persons, that have taken Damien. I hope that it just gnaws on you. Please come up behind you. Do they know it's you? Are they going to go past you? Are they going to pull you over? Do the person in front of you, the person in back of you, do they know? Smoke is a production of Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local. Created, written, and told by Stacey Gross. Executive producers are Stacey Gross and Brian Hagberg. Our theme is Diddy Six, written and produced by Bob Gross. Voice acting by Frank Williams and Adam McCoy. Audio production, transcription, and cover art by Stacey Gross. Check out the show notes for links to our website, sources we've used, and a full transcript of each episode. Visit us on social media at Let's Find Damien. If you like the show, tell everyone. Remember to follow the show wherever you're listening, rate, and review. It'll help us out a ton. <laughs>